The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. And they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. Talk is Jericho, baby. Talk is Jericho. Talk is Jericho, mama. Talk is me. All right, welcome to Talk is Jericho. It's the pot of thunder and rock and roll. All right, right here today on Talk is Jericho. Don Callis making his return and his solo debut right here on tij he was part of the famous the infamous the hugely popular jericho 25th anniversary podcast last year it went over so huge i had lenny st Clair come back for a solo shot and of course my old tag team partner lance storm has been on solo a couple times so now it's don's turn and he's got some crazy stories to share from his run at wwe working the canadian independence working ecw but first you're gonna hear all about his gimmick as the jackal in the wwe the parade of oddities that served as his people, how he managed to get out of the dead-end gimmick, the Truth Commission, which was the first thing he did at WWE. He's also talking about the proposed Messiah gimmick that never got off the ground, why he kept turning down creative jobs at WWE, why the uh, tag team with him and Rick Martel, the supermodels, didn't work out, how Bret Hart helped Don in the WWE in general, also talking about his move to ECW as Cyrus. Hugely popular, lots of heat, great, great heel. Don is a very, very smart guy. He's going to tell you all about touring the uh, Canadian Northlands. He's going to talk about the pro, uh, the pro wrestling tour he did in Lebanon. He almost didn't make it back from that one. He'll tell the whole story coming up. One of my oldest friends in the wrestling business. One of the smartest guys and one of the funniest you'll ever meet. Uh, he should almost have his own show, you might think, at some point in time. But Don Callis is coming up here. Uh, and after Don is finished, after Don's interview is done, I got another huge announcement to make right here on Talk is Jericho. It's a big one. It's a good one. It's a good one, and it's coming up right after we talk to my fellow Canadian and one of my oldest friends, Don Cowles. Stick around. Speaking of announcements, there's still a few tickets left to the upcoming Talk is Jericho live in Toronto with AJ Styles. That's right, the SmackDown World Champion. That's happening November 20th at the Bassett Theatre before Survivor Series. It starts at 10 a.m. Toronto time. Plenty of time to come check out the show and then go to the Survivor Series after that. There's going to be a brunch with AJ and myself that starts at about 10 o'clock. Then uh, there's some co- a couple tickets left for that. Then we got a, an exclusive VIP meet and greet. Take your pictures. Get your autograph signing. You got a live talk as Jericho. We're going to discuss everything that's been going on with AJ's career. AJ was on right when he came back to the WWE way back, or, or when he came to the WWE way back, I believe it was in January of last year. So we'll talk about the whole, basically, uh, year in AJ's life of all the great things that's happened. Uh, you got to check this out. Out. I had a great, great show, Talk is Jericho, live in New York City with Christian. This is even bigger and better. Talk is Jericho, live in Toronto with AJ Styles. 
VIP breakfast, VIP meet and greet, photos, autographs, everything you want. Go to markoutmoments.com to get your ticket to the live podcast, to the brunch, to the meet and greet. Again, Talk is Jericho live with AJ Styles, Sunday, November 20th at the Bassett Theater in Toronto, the same day as Survivor Series. Survivor Series will start at 7. This show will be done at 2. Gives you a chance to come rock out with us, go have something to eat, go have a couple drinky winkies, then head over to the big show. Talk is Jericho. So we have the uh, big 25th anniversary show, and uh, one of the big hits was Don Callis. The big uh, people clamoring to hear more from, from Don Callis, and here we are. He's here. He uh, l- like every other thing I've ever done, I'm over like crazy. Yeah. Would you say put me in front of a mic since 1989? Batting a 1,000 MF? <laughs> You yeah. may have caught me in a weak moment. <laughs> so, I mean, it's, it's, it's funny because um, we've, we've got so much history and so much past, but I haven't seen you too much over the last few years. But ever since that 25th anniversary show, it like reconnected, like me and Lenny reconnected huge from it. And then me and you have kind of reconnected huge yeah. from it as well. It's like you forget like, oh, this guy's a pretty cool guy or whatever it is, you know? Yeah, I always remembered that I was a cool guy. I'd kind of uh, I'd forgotten how much you annoy me sometimes. But uh, in what way? No, I, well, I know you know, I, I don't want to talk about the trans again. But I will say that the hotel room we're sitting in right now was arranged by me. By I you. try to look after you, brother. By your sister, and it is literally like a suite. Mm-hmm. And and. The, the comparison to the one in Manhattan, not too favorable. That's all I'm saying. But that was Manhattan, which is Manhattan. It's three times the That was 1990s trans. This is like what 2016 what kind of trans. trans? I, I got you the trans you asked for. What kind of trans did, did I get what, you? It, the trans I asked for, you got me a different airline, a different routing, and it took me 18 hours to get to New York. Shut up. That's not even true. That's not even true. <laughs> I, I talked to the guy at Delta yesterday at the airport, and I said, look, Chris is coming in. Treat him like a VIP now. So you see what I do for you? <laughs> yeah, I didn't see anybody. But you did arrange for this wonderful suite, or at least your assistant did, which is good. We all love you here. <laughs> yeah, well, thank you. yeah, the home of the home of Jericho. <laughs> but that was uh, when we had the show at Madison Square Garden, and you went there. Was that like the first WWE show, wrestling show that you'd been to that you sat in the crowd since you got in the business? Yeah, um, absolutely. And um, the, the first WWE show that I'd been at since 1998 – um, because I was never a guy who would like show up at the arena and go backstage like the old bulldog Bob Brown. I'm not if I'm not booked in the show, I'm not going to go there, right? Yeah. So, um, so I was kind of cool because my first match uh, for events was in Madison Square Garden in '97, and then kind of my last experience with you uh, was there. And I didn't know we we're going to be sitting in the crowd. Mm-hmm. I actually had I think I said to you before I'd like to sit in the crowd, but like way at the back, just because I've I've never done it. Right. Uh, and then uh, Malenko came and handed us front row tickets and i said to lance we don't actually have to sit in the front row do we and he's like well yeah i think chris wants us to so you rib me again (laughs) and uh, i was sitting next to john stewart though which i actually didn't even know and i'm looking at this kind of disheveled looking dude and he starts talking to me and i'm like i think this is john stewart and it was which was kind of cool yeah well and that's by the way you guys were in the front row by orders of vince ah Vince looking after me again. <laughs> but he really said, he's, I told him, yeah, I'm flying my friends in. He goes, oh, we'll put him in the front row. He goes, we might even put him inside of the, he won't, at one point wanted to put you guys inside of the barricade, like the timekeeper sits. I was convinced that there was, someone was going to come to us at the last minute and say, okay, uh, I think Kevin Owens, you're wrestling. Yeah, Owens. Kevin Owens is going to shoot you outside, and uh, you know, Lance, you're going to grab Kevin Owens, and he's going to slap Don or something. <laughs> I was right. like, I said, Lance, I'm so not going for 
for that unless I'm getting a big payoff. <laughs> getting the whole Hart Brothers <laughs> thing, right? So you were, you debuted for the WWE in Madison Square Garden. Yeah, yeah. Wow. In, in a in a in a red beret, a pair of tight riding pants, and an army shirt. <laughs> this is when you were the, <laughs> the, Truth, the Commission. Truth Commission. Yeah. So that was not a good way to debut. But what what was the concept of what was the Truth Commission? Um, well, I think it was kind of you know uncreative creative back mm. then uh they had been to south africa and there was a thing in south africa called the truth commission which bore by the way no actual resemblance to the truth commission gimmick um and so someone had come up with this gimmick and the guy that was the commandant uh the head of the group who was a, a south african actor friend of bret hart's apparently uh had gotten fired or had a visa problem so they're like oh let's just put Don in there. Let's take the guy who's always had kind of long hair and done the heel thing and let's ask him to shave his head and, and wear an army suit, which is what they kind of did. Um, the weird thing for me leading up to that, though, was that um, Rick Martell and I had been doing a tag team gimmick for about seven months uh, called the Supermodels. And uh, we'd kind of done, done indies all over North America. And we'd gone in June, May to meet with Vince at Titan Towers. Sat down, pitched him the gimmick. He loved. He's like, oh, I love the you know Rick's the model that, but you guys are now the supermodels, and Don's got the Fabio trip going, and like that was going to be the thing. And you know, as you probably would figure, like we could we could work a good heel tag team gimmick, the two of us, you know. And it was a great idea. It's a great way to come in at that time because he like as a smaller guy, which now I don't know how much smaller I'd be in today's world. Yeah, like I'm like six two, and I was about two ten, but that made me one of the skinnier guys on the roster. Right. You didn't have the classic beefy muscle. Yeah, body, right. yeah. So uh, the, the Lance Storm manly physique. Uh, so, uh, so yeah. So I mean, uh, coming in as a tag team, and then with Rick, and kind of the plan always was like we'd go for like a year, two years, whatever we could get out of it uh, as a heel tag team, and then he would eventually turn babyface and then retire, and I would be a heel against him. And so, actually, we met with Vince in Titan Towers. He loved the gimmick. And he had this, this idea. He pitched to us. He says, oh, you can debut in uh, Atlantic City. We'll shoot some stuff on the beach. And I thought, oh, this sounds really cool. He's into it, right? And uh, he's like, hey, Rick. He goes, remember, uh, remember when uh, Beefcake had all that heat with Randy Savage on the beach in Florida? And Rick's, like, kind of looking uncomfortable. And I and Vince goes, oh, Don, he goes, uh, it was great. You know, he says, uh, Savage was there with Elizabeth and uh, Beefcake comes down and he's wearing a thong on the beach and Savage was getting hot because he had a thong. So he's like, we'll do this thing with you guys walking down the beach. We'll shoot you from the waist up and you're waving at people playing the role. And then as we pan out, you're both walking together wearing thongs. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm just like. Hey, Vince has an idea for us. Where do I get the thong? You yeah, know, of course. Uh, but Rick was not <laughs> in the car afterwards. Like Don, you know, I don't think uh, we're going to do that. And I just said, well, whatever. So, uh, were you, were you Donnie Casablancas? Uh, Don Casablancas. Okay, Don Casablancas. Because uh, I thought I needed like a model name. It's a great name. Yeah. And uh, so I was. Rick was going to do the classic wrestler thing, and I was going to wear like the Fabio cutoffs and the you know mesh shirt or right said Fred song. Was, was <laughs> yeah, I'm so sexy. Yeah, yeah. So uh, so it was going to be pretty cool. And we'd actually uh, Lenny's mom had made our gear for us and we'd kind of gone all over with it and uh worked uh, the maritimes for five weeks like working edge and christian every night in the main event mm. uh you know 30 40 minutes like those guys were great back then sure. you know so uh we were ready Dude, did martel come to you with this idea like and were you guys kind of doing a uh a, a- 
like a minor league tour to get in yeah, shape yeah. for the WWE? So, so kind of what had happened is uh, I just come back from Japan. Uh, thanks for that booking, by the way. Uh, oh, they got you booked? Uh, Ultimo Dragon, anyway. All oh, right, uh, there you go. Uh, so by extension, by extension, yeah, yeah. Was it who, so, you, who, Tokyo who, Pro? Oh, yeah, yeah. I killed the territory. One tour, they were <laughs> shut down. <laughs> yeah. Chicago was the boss. Lot, lots of heat with Abdul the Butcher, but that's for later. Uh, so anyway, so I just come back from Japan, and uh, I had... Uh, I had to go to a wedding in Toronto, and so I, I thought, well, I'm going to go see Carl DeMarco, and because he was president of WWE, and I know that he was trying to help Adam, and I thought, well, I'll he was go. the president of WWE Canada. Yeah, yeah, right. WWE yeah. Canada. Yeah. So uh, uh, I went and called on him, and I had my tape, my highlight tape, and uh, he sat with me in his office. He watched the whole thing, ten minute tape, you know, promos, me bumping, whatever, and he looks at me after, goes, I'm going to give you some advice, Don, and I said. Okay, great. And he goes, you should try to look more like Ultimate Warrior. And I'm like, you what? mean like tassels or like you mean face paint? And he goes, no, your body. Like if you could look more like Ultimate Warrior, that would, <laughs> that's what you need to do. <laughs> and I'm going, and, and, and I like, Carl's a nice guy, yeah. but brother has never darkened the doorstep of a gymnasium. <laughs> you know what I mean? And, and, and I'm going like, do you know like what genetics that guy has and how hard he – like I could never – you could Nobody. have a team of scientists. I could never look like the ultimate where nobody, I mean, the small right. waist that did. Yeah. So I just, I walked into there, Chris, and I was just like, you know what? It might be time for me to get out of the business because this is the advice I'm getting. Like, that's, I was so hot at him. It was all I could do not to cut a promo on him, yeah. but I didn't. I go home. Week later, he calls me. Hey, Don, Carl DeMarco. He goes, you know who likes your tape? And I'm like, he's ribbing me. I was about to say ultimate warrior, but I didn't. He goes, Bret Hart. And I'm thinking it's – I'm so beat down at this point by him. I'm thinking it's the Bret Hart, the guy who was the promoter in Florida. <laughs> I'm like, the promoter? <laughs> and he's like, no, Bret Hart, the world champion. I'm the like, Bret Hart. I go, how the hell did Bret Hart see my tape? He's like, oh, I was with Bret, and I popped the tape in. Bret thinks you're great, and he wants to meet with you when he's in Winnipeg in two weeks. And I'm like, wow, thanks, Carl. Like – I couldn't believe it. Right. So, uh, so Brett came to Winnipeg, and uh, we did a meeting, and I was, of course, like totally marked out and intimidated. And Brett was just like, you know, how he talks. He's like, yeah, you know, you're really good. I think you Superman could be, bad. yeah, be like the next Piper, you know. And I was like, whoa. And he's like, he thought that he said that he to you after seeing a ten minute tape. Uh, well, with promos, a lot wow. of promos on them. Yeah. And I went, whoa. And I'm like, don't you think I'm too small? Like, I just was so. And he just looked at me and goes. No, I could see you working with Sean, like, for example. He's like, you're not really any smaller than him. and Taller like, than Brett, too, at the time. Yeah. And I was like, whoa. Like he just, so he just kind of said, like, oh, do you, like, do you want me to come to your house and train? Because, like, I think Adam was doing that at that time. And he's like, no. He goes, you, you've been in the business seven years. He goes, you don't need that. He goes, just, just keep doing what you're doing. And he goes, I'm going to get you in. I can get people booked. I'm the world champion. That's what he said to me. Really? I was like, Whoa. Dude, like a week later. And you, you know how it was, well, for most of us, not for you, but there'd be long periods where you'd be like questioning, like, why am I in this business? Like, nothing's going the way I want it. A week later, uh, Rick Martell calls me. I hadn't talked to him for a while. We'd done like a two-year loop Yeah, he together. worked for, for you here. He was my pay. top baby face. I was a heel. Right. Calls me up a week later. Hey, Don, how's it going? Hey, Rick, I was about to tell him about the Bret Hart thing. Don, I want to make a comeback to the business. Like, hey, good for you, Rick. Awesome. He goes, uh, but... I want to come back as a tag team. And he goes, I want you to be my tag team partner. He goes, I think new young guy, new, you got a great look, and I'm not a good talker. You're a great talker. This could be great. And I'm like, right away, like inside I go, we could be the supermodels. Like I came up with it like boom, right? And so I was like, well, 
like Brett said, keep working. So I'm just going to kind of do this thing with Rick and kind of see where it goes, right? And at the same time, Carl DeMarco is saying, I was talking to Brett about putting you and Adam Copeland together in a tag team. But Adam, you and Adam. Yeah, but Adam wasn't edge then. He was Adam Copeland struggling Sexton independent wrestler. Well, he was great, too. Yeah. But I just went, well... I kind of like the idea of this Rick Martel thing more than I like Carl's idea because at that time, the Rick thing was very real and it's like classic how you go back in. It's great. It's such a great idea to this day. Back then, it wasn't... I think now it's very clear how you get into the WWF. There's a system, right? Back then, as you know, there really wasn't. And if you were from Canada and you weren't huge, there wasn't a way in. One of the things Bret Hart... Uh, doesn't get credit for, I think, is he really changed the way the WWE or the WWF at the time looked at Canadian independent talent because he started getting guys like me, Adam, Jay, Glenn, Kolka, and saying, hey, I'm going to get you guys booked because, as you know, in the early 90s, like, how did you get in? How did you, you know? That's a great point. So now you you get booked by, or you get hired in NXT. Yeah, exactly. There's a process. And uh, it was much more kind of murky back then. Sure. And even know who to call or anything. Further complicated by being Canadian, you know? So, uh, so yeah, so Rick and I started doing this thing. And, like, I'd go out to Quebec City. I'd live at his house for, like, a month. Or, or sorry, about two weeks at a time. Then we go on, we train, train, train. He's, you know, he's an insane bodybuilding guy, like, really good trainer. So we'd work. And then we'd go on the road, do indies. And then I'd go back to Winnipeg. And then I'd come back. We'd do more indies. So, yeah, so we'd been doing that. Is this something, let me ask you, was, was Mortel funding this at all in any way? Or were you making enough money? that Like, was he paying you some cash to be yeah so what rick was basically said was i'll pay all your expenses as we ramp this up gotcha and then once we're in new york you can just pay me back as because we'll be making which is cool i mean big money you know he, he knew the investment was in you for him yeah right yeah so uh so that was it so leading up to this madison square garden thing so it's the summer and rick and i had just done some shots in winnipeg and uh he had gone home then he came back again i picked him up at the airport he goes i gotta talk to you now this is a month before we're supposed to start in uh, Atlantic City. You for, had a start for Vince. date. Yeah, yeah, for Vince, Atlantic City. And Vince had sent us contracts. Now, Rick wanted a downside guarantee. He's Rick Martell. He should probably get one. They sent us the standard contract. You know, we will endeavor to book you. Is that uh, it? Yeah, yeah. And, uh, <laughs> is, that I, the one, is that the one where you're guaranteed like 1500 bucks or something? And shows he, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, whatever. Yeah. Chris, I couldn't have cared less. I'd have signed anything. You know, I'd have mowed Vince's lawn to get a contract. <laughs> We're all like that back then, yeah. right? It's like you're you're gambling on yourself. Mm-hmm. And what Vince would have said back then is, hey, I'm giving you an opportunity. Right. And that's how I saw it. I took the contract to my lawyer, and he, when he stopped laughing hysterically, he said, don't sign this. And I was like, I'm signing it. You need to witness it. So I signed the contract. I hadn't sent it in yet, but uh, Rick uh, didn't sign the contract. He was not happy with it. But I didn't think anything would come of it. Well, Rick was real tight with Roddy, like really good friends with Roddy Piper. So Rick comes to Winnipeg, goes, I got to talk to you. I said, what's up? He goes, I'm going to WCW. And I'm like, what? He goes, look, I cannot do this pioneering thing of, you know, no guaranteed money. I talked to Roddy. He said, I pitched us as a tag team. But at that time, you probably remember Bischoff was totally turned off tag teams and the whole tag team division was pretty much defunct. Great point. So he went, I got to go as a single. Um, I talked to them about you. Uh, they don't know you, but they're gonna, they'll bring you in for a look. They'll let you cut a promo. You know, He goes, I think you'll do fine. You'll get a job. That's what he said. He goes, they're int- I told them what a good promo you were. They're, they're quite interested. 
And I was like, we've been working this for seven months to go to WWF. And like you, WWF was my dream, not WCW. So I was like, yeah. but I'm like, I have a contract. I have a start date. Like, I was so excited. And I'm like, my whole world is just falling apart. So Rick, uh, Rick had to go and see someone he knew here. And so I was by myself, like, for a day. And as soon as he was out of my car, I called Bret Hart who I hadn't talked to for several months. And I was a little sheepish about it because, you know, he'd kind of given me indirectly like, hey, I'll help you, blah, blah, blah. But I've been doing this thing with Rick. I called him, picked up the phone. He says, hey, Don. He goes, oh, I haven't heard from you in a long time. I say, hey, so I told Brett exactly what happened. I'm like, but you were just doing what he told you to do. Go keep working. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I said, Brett, this is what happened to me. And I said, I don't want to go to WCW. I want to go to WWF. And to me, the opportunity was the same. They're going to take a look at me in WWF. They're going to take a look at me in WCW. So I'm going to Vince. And I said, but Brett, they're never going to believe that I have the option to go to WCW. They're going to think that I have no option there. And I'm just kind of going, oh, well, will you still take me? And I knew from a business perspective how this was going to look. And I knew they would never believe me that I didn't know that Rick was doing this. Now, one of the reasons Rick and Rick and I are very good friends to this day. One of the reasons Rick didn't tell me he was flying to Atlanta to do this meeting was to protect me so that I legitimately wouldn't know Mm -hmm. and would have plausible deniability. Right, 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 right. So I said, look, I've got a a big problem here. And he goes, well, he goes, have you talked to the office? I said, no. He said, okay, well, you should talk to the office and then call me back. So I call the office and Bruce Pritchard calls me. And Bruce, I think it would be fair to say, didn't believe that I didn't know. You know, and he was like, and, and honestly, why would he? Why would he? Right. He doesn't know yeah. me. And Bruce kind of said, you know, Don, he's like, I take everyone at their word. But uh, having said that, uh, you know, he goes, we heard that they have no interest in you and aren't giving you a tryout and that now you just want to come here. And I so what are you going to say? I just said, well, that's not the case. Right. So I call Brett and I'm like, this is what Bruce said. I'm totally screwed. Like, I've lost this deal now. And Brett goes, I don't. I don't deal with Bruce. He goes, I talked to Vince. He goes, I'll call you back. Calls me back in 15 minutes. He goes, Vince says, send in your contract. And I'd already sent it in. Actually, I'd sent it in like three days before. I'm like, it's already sent in. He's like, okay. He goes, don't worry about Bruce. He goes, I talked to Vince about you. He's thinking of putting you with the Hart Foundation. Wow. At the time, they had the Canadian angle going. And Brian Pillman, God rest his soul, was their spokesperson because I think he had an ankle injury. Yeah, he hurt himself, yeah. But... He was going to be off for a while, or they thought he was, and they needed a spokesman guy, was the thought. So Vince said, well, Brett, if you say he's that good a talker, why don't we put him with the Heart Foundation? So Brett goes, what do you think about that? I'm like, what do I think about that? (laughs) (laughs) Let me check. Unbelievable, right? Yeah. Dude, like a week later, Pritchard calls me, and he goes, hey, Don, he goes, "Uh, you watch our TV? And I'm like, yeah, uh, absolutely. He goes, "Uh, yeah, he goes, "Uh, are you familiar with the Truth Commission? And I just went, oh, shit. Like, this is, this is not good. And uh, so I said, yeah. And he goes, well, what I need you to do is go get a, a brush cut and uh, get yourself some riding pants and a red beret, and you're going to start in Madison Square Garden. Hung up the phone, called Brett. I'm like, Brett, this is a disaster. He must have been getting What so happened angry. to the Hart Foundation, brother? <laughs> and Brett just kind of said, well, this is what they want to do you know just do it try to make it work we'll figure it out you know i go brett they want me to shave my head i said i can i've never worked with short hair 
I can't do that. Like it's, you know, he goes, let me work on that. He goes, just show up at the garden. I'll see you there. So I went out to where do you buy riding pants? You know, I uh, went out to some, went out to some uh, uh, you know uh, horse store in uh, Headingley <laughs> and got these riding pants. I look like a woman figure skater or something in them. They're like skin tight, and uh, and then I uh, and I got the red beret at army surplus and nice. uh, and went to Madison Square Garden. Now, but I'm going there not knowing if I'm actually doing this gimmick. So I have my other stuff too because I'm thinking Brett's still going to try to kill this, right? So I show up, and I mean, I'm, I, I meet the guys that's, that are in my group, and they're all enormous, which makes me look so much smaller. And uh, in the group? Kurgan, 6'10", 6'11", yeah. you know. Uh, Barry Buchanan, 6'6", 300. Who later became Bull Buchanan. Yeah. yeah. Luke Poiré, Rambo from CWA, 6'5", 300. Gosh, I forgot about him. You know? And, uh, and they're like, hey, brother, like, you know, and I'm just like, I don't even... I'm thinking to myself, I don't even know if I'm in this group. And, and I'm so Brett is in with Vince for like. Quickly, how did that feel for you to pull up to Madison Square Garden? Well, I didn't most- pull up. I, I took a bus from Newark. <laughs> and uh, I took a bus from Newark and, and walked. Uh, and actually, at the time, I had, uh, as you remember, I had a gold Halliburton because I was such a mark for Ric Flair. And, uh, and I used to wear a suit everywhere, yeah. you know. And, uh, but. I kayfabed. I was like, I got some old gym bag. I didn't want to take my Halliburton in there and get heat. I, I wore like jeans because I didn't want to get heat. You had heard the rumors I had heard already, that yeah. like, it's like, don't, don't overplay it. So uh, I'm waiting around. Finally, I see Brett at like six o'clock. Now, what I realized later is this is two months before Survivor Series in Montreal. So all of those discussions he's having with Vince are probably about what's going on. So I'm like, and I don't know that. I'm like, Brett, what's going on? Do I have to get my hair cut? <laughs> and he's like, no. He goes, don't worry. Put it in a ponytail. Vince said you can do the Rambo trip. And I'm like, okay. So I ended up, you know, having to do this thing, running out with the guys in Madison Square Garden in the most ridiculous outfit. And I felt bad for those guys, too, because they didn't do them any, any favors. Like, first off, you've got a giant who really has a unique look. So let's dress him like two other guys who are three inches shorter, yeah. which makes him look shorter, um, makes none of them look special. Like it was a difficult gimmick mm-hmm. and worse for me. Certain gimmicks that you see on, and the moment they walk out, you're like, this is not going to work. Mm-hmm. And why even go through with it if you know it's not going to work? You know? and, and they would have already known it wasn't working because they'd been doing it for six months. Mm-hmm. They should have pulled the pin. And so that was my Madison Square Garden debut. And then I had like a house show run where they had me wrestling. And that was the other thing. It's like up until I debuted, I still thought I was going to be a wrestler, right? Because that's what I'd always been. And, you know, I like to wrestle. I didn't know how to be a manager. I didn't want to be a manager. And actually, that's another thing they said to me. Well, you're going to be like Johnny Polo, a bumping manager. And I'm like, that is so the kiss of death. Because a bumping manager takes a lot of bumps, but no one, or a wrestling manager, sorry. But when you wrestle, no one wants to sell for you because you're a manager. So it was just a terrible, they were like, you're going to be like Johnny Polo. And I'm like, I love Raven, but I'm like, that gimmick wasn't great either. Horrible analogy. Yeah, yeah. So, So now it's like all of a sudden I'm in this environment and I really don't know how to act because I've always been a wrestler. And you know, as you know, when you... When you get in the ring, you be somewhere new, and I've done this a hundred times in different territories. You be somewhere new, but you might not know anyone. But if you and I go in the ring and have a match, and we're sweating and we're bumping, that's that's the icebreaker. You sure. bond, right? Now all of a sudden, I'm the manager going out and getting heat on the microphone and not bumping and stuff like that. And then 
to make it worse, I'm being put in situations where guys now have to wrestle me and sell, even though I'm the manager. So right. it was brutal. And um, I remember right after MSG, we did a house show run through like, I don't know, Connecticut or something. And, uh, and I wrestled Tom Brandy the first night. And my guys didn't know I could wrestle. So they're like, you wrestle? And I'm like, yeah, for eight years. And they're like, where'd you wrestle? So I'm like telling them like, oh. So I go out with Brandy who, yeah, he's a really good kind of meat and potatoes baby face. Could, Salvatore. Yeah, 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 yeah. He could make a hot comeback, you know. Right. So predictably, I could have a good match with a guy like that. And uh, so we had this match. and It was good. Got the crowd going and uh, come back. And the guys in the group are like, holy shit. How, what do you mean? And they're like, you're better than all of us. <laughs> Why are you managing? And I'm like, thanks. I don't know. You know, and that was kind of the theme, I guess, of my whole time there was, what am I? Am right. I a wrestler? Are you am I a manager? Am I a TV commentator? Am I a television writer? You know, so it was, it was hard to figure frustrating. out. Frustrating. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Talk is talk is talk is Jericho. When you were meeting with Vince, I mean, how was that, you know, very intimidating guy the first few meetings, but you're coming in and he's talking to you in his office and, you know, telling you to send in your contract. He must have had some kind of an idea about you being Uh, a a good performer. I think Brett saying so helped me. Yeah. Um, But I never talked to him like the first six weeks. I mean, I'm in this terrible gimmick, Mm -hmm. dead man walking, you know, all of us were. And I knew I, I need to get out of this gimmick. I know if I go and complain about it, they're not going to take me out of it. I need to come up with my own thing, and I need to take a risk and change it. And that was what I did in Her- Hershey, Pennsylvania. We had a, a tag team war with the, the bikers, you know. So, that was the time when there was all these horrible tag teams, the bikers, the barricuas. It was, was groups of four, right? right? And it was lollying up Survivor Series. So it was like DOA, so the Harris twins who are, who are lovely gentlemen, um, but very large. Yeah. And uh, Brian Lee, who could really work. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, Brian Adams, who was a super nice guy. But these guys are all over six foot seven. <laughs> Someone's got to work with me in a four on four, yeah. and no one wants to because it's like we're going to sell for this little skinny guy, right? <laughs> so, uh, so. But I'm in this outfit, and I'm like, I need to get out of this. I cannot go on a pay-per-view in this outfit. So um, I decided, like, I used to wear as a shoot, like, just around, like, leather motorcycle jacket, which I kind of thought looked cool. Mm-hmm. I'd seen Raven do it on ECW. I'm like, well, that'd be cool. I'd like to wear black leather for this gimmick, because I already had the cult leader gimmick in my head. But how do I transition it? If I pitch it, they'll never let me do it. So what I did was we were going out for a live promo on Raw, uh, right before Survivor Series, a go-home show, and they told me to cut a promo on the DOA. And so I took my hair out of the ponytail, I dished the beret right in the gorilla position, and I slipped on this leather motorcycle jacket at the gorilla position. And the, my guys look at me and like, what are you doing, dude? We're going to get heat. And I'm like, I'm either going to get fired or I'm out of this gimmick, one of two things. And I really, either way, 
If I stay in this gimmick, I'm screwed. So I went out with this motorcycle jacket on, which looked a lot cooler. And what I did was I tied it into the promo on the bikers. Like I kind of turned it on the people. And I'm like, you know, is this what I got to do to get over with you people? I've got to wear this disgusting, greasy motorcycle jacket. You know, these are your heroes. And I kind of turned it that way and cut this fiery promo. And uh, just to let them have the visual of me wearing something remotely cool and the hair down. And then I cut this promo, crescendo, the DOA hits the ring, we had to pull apart. As a promo for me, it wouldn't be one of my best at all. But their expectations for me by this time are so low because they're like, oh, this thing sucks, right? Barely hang on. I walked through the, the, through the, to the gorilla position after and like literally agents are waiting for me and I'm thinking, oh, I'm fired, <laughs> right? But they're all hugging me, high-fiving me. Ooh. Um, Jerry Briscoe, uh, Pat, gotcha. uh, Jim Cornette came up to me and said, I'm proud to be a manager today. Um, people popped and I'm like, Oh, okay. Wow. So, and then Vince Russo comes up to me afterwards and he's like, uh, Donnie goes, uh, you know, Vince really liked what you did. He said, we got to get you out of this stupid gimmick. <laughs> so wow. he goes, do you have any suggestions? I go, I not only have a suggestion, I've already bought the gimmick. I had the black suit already that I was going to eventually wear. I go, I got it in my bag. He's like, put it on let me see it so i put it on he's like oh this is really cool so mission accomplished right another funny thing about jim Cornette, and i ri- i joke with jim about this when i first went there i went up to Cornette and i said can you give me some advice about being a manager because i really don't know and he looked at me and he goes don and he was on the creative at the time he goes don they don't let managers get over here so just forget it <laughs> and i'm like my first week okay um, but when you're talking about this promo that you did, because now th- every promo is written, yeah, uh, you know, no one's ever approved. told us anything. That right, like the, I remember yeah. my first opening promo when I interrupted the Rock was completely written by me with no rehearsal, no approval, no nothing. It was a terrible promo. <laughs> but I'm just saying, but that's how it was at the time. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. you just went out there with nothing other nothing. than just they, talk about the DOA. They, they, they said talk about the DOA. Gotcha. You're going to Survivor Series, so I show up at Survivor Series the next week. I see Vince, and he stops. He goes, hey, Don. Hi, Mr. McMahon. It's Vince. He goes, hell of a promo. We're going to get you on color commentary today. Okay. Wow. So I did my thing, and it's online. It's like, you know, me working with Ron Harris. <laughs> you know, So I'm just like, it's funny because it was also my first experience with kind of the production of how a match is going to go. So before the Survivor Series match, I'm going, okay, I'm the leader of my group. Brian Adams, the leader of his group. So I go to him. I go, hey, I got a great spot we can do. And he kind of looks at me and I go, do something where you go out to the floor. You guys are balling on the floor. I said, I'll go up the top rope. I'll do a cross body off the top of the floor. Catch me. Press slam me and press slam me on the concrete. And he looks at me. He goes, you'll do that? I go, dude, like happily right because i'm just thinking i want to get the guys over i want to and so i'm talking to him and uh briscoe was like coordinating the match but i didn't know they got this involved and he goes what don what are you talking about i'm like well i'm just giving him a spot he goes there are no spots he goes this is what you guys are doing so it was like totally laid out by the agents which i was not used to so i went in with ron harris and kind of like i'm thinking okay well basically like i'm gonna go in commentary afterwards i want to get the guy over so i'm like okay i do a top rope knee drop which had always been my finish and is a, is a very strong finish i'm like you know press slam me out of the kick out type of thing and then you know do your finish and i'll scoot out which is what we did so i went on color commentary afterwards and then at tv on the monday i was in the new black gimmick and doing the cult leader thing so it was one of those deals where take a risk and it i don't know that it applies to today or not but 
it, it definitely works out. And just as an aside, where I learned this was in 1996 when I did my tryout with Vince in Green Bay, Wisconsin, which is a whole other story. I made the mistake when I went out for my dark match. I had a really good little match with PJ Polacco, Justin Incredible, Matt Portuguese Man of War, whatever, Aldo Montoya. Yeah, Aldo Montoya. But the mistake I made was I didn't grab the mic and cut a promo. Now, they told me not to go near the mic before I went out. And I, they had a tape of me prior to me going in. This is why they brought me in for dark match. They had a tape of me with all these great promos. And Chief Strongbow had told Vince, you got to watch this guy's promos. But when I got to the building... Bruce Pritchard said to Chief, well, oh, we never watched his tape. We'll watch tonight. Well, that's okay for the wrestling, but for the promos, which was really my thing that made forte, me special, yeah. if you want to call it that, um, that didn't help. And I always regretted not grabbing the mic and cutting a promo and then having the match. Because I always went, if I'd done that, I'd have had a job there in 96, for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and I didn't. And I thought of that when we were in Hershey, Pennsylvania, and I went, you know, got to take a chance. Because if you don't, because at the end of the day, people can knock creative, but no create. You could get Paul Heyman and the, the greatest creative minds, Pat Patterson, Vince. No one's going to come up with as good stuff for you or for me as you or I are going right. to, because we spend our whole time thinking about yeah. ourselves. Right? That's the nature of it. So you have you can't rely on people to fix it for you. You have to fix it yourself. And that was kind of the approach. Not that it had some miraculous payoff for me, because a year and a half later I was I was I left there. But I would have been done a lot sooner, and you know, been wearing a red beret for a year and a half if I hadn't done it. So, when you transitioned over to the Jackal, I mean, like you mentioned, it was like a cult leader, and it was really, especially at that time frame, kind of late nineties. Something that hadn't really been seen, and almost a little bit like controversial on how you were playing that character. It was like a very much a religious thing, and, and we don't touch religion in the WWE. Well, and it's funny that they, Jim Ross used to call me the David Koresh of the World Wrestling Federation, mm-hmm. which you know is a very direct reference. And uh, but I like how I looked at it was I went okay, so I'm this character, and I've got these huge guys that are doing everything I say. Why are they listening to me? They're not listening to me because I'm their military commander. No one will believe that. They're not listening to me because I'm bigger and tougher than them. So there's got to be a reason. And the only thing I could come up with was, well, it's a mind control thing. It's a cult thing, you know? And so, and and I also broke Kurgan away from the other two because I thought we need to make this guy. They kept talking about him working with Taker. And I'm like, that's great. If you want him to work with Taker, you need to get him off on his own. And I remember the first TV, because I said to Russo, I, we got to break him away. So I went back to Winnipeg and I wrote uh, four weeks of television on, you know, computer paper, whatever, segment by segment on how to change Kurgan over, what his new character, his name would be Kurgan because it was previously the interrogator because I was a big mark for the Highlander movie. Oh, okay. And, uh, and I saw Lanza on the plane from Minneapolis to wherever we're going, and I showed him these kind of five pages of television, and I had like four or five weeks all mapped out. And he looked at me like he couldn't believe what he was seeing. He's like, how do you know how to do this? And I'm like, I don't know. I used to produce Tony's television. And he's like, you need to show this to Russo. So when I got there, because Russo was writing the TV or whatever at the time, he was Vince's guy, showed it to Russo, and they bought into everything. A week later... Jim Ross comes up to me and goes, would you be interested in moving to Stanford and being a part of creative, which at the time was a pretty small group. And I'm like, only been there two months. Right. And and I go, 
and it was for me really uncomfortable because I didn't want to move to Connecticut and be. In, I still wanted to be a wrestler. Yeah. And I said, I said to Jr. I said, I, I really appreciate it, but I said, I still think I have a run as a wrestler. I said, I think we could do this, especially with Kurgan as kind of a heater. We could do this thing where you let me build up the heat with the promos, and then someone's finally going to kick my ass, and then kind of the, the heat is whoa, this guy can wrestle and he's been kayfabing it all this time. And I said, I think I can have a run as a wrestler. Um, and he just kind of said, well, Vin- Vince thinks you should do this and move to Connecticut. And I got that offer two more times in the next six months and it cre- increasingly made me uncomfortable because it's like, okay, they're not dropping this because JR came up to me again and, uh, and said the same thing. And then Lanza came up to me and said, you know, Vince really thinks you should move to Connecticut and write television. And so that was kind of, again, confusing. What am I? Am I now a writer? But it was just because I had written this stuff out. And, um, but I, one thing about Russo is you could go to him with stuff and he'd be interested in it, you know, and he would take it under advisement. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, but back to the religious thing, the thing was starting to get over with Kurgan and I. And, uh, you know, we, you can tell when it's getting over people are either have signs or there, there's, you know, kids with jewels on their heads and all that stuff, you know? So where I knew we were in trouble, we're at Penn state university. And I said, you know, I got an idea to do a vignette. They had a guy back then. I can't remember his name, David something, but he used to shoot a lot of vignettes and did a really good David job. Sahati. Yeah. 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 And I said, uh, we're on a campus. Let's send the jackal out on the steps of one of the, the, the buildings and just start with a camera, someone shooting it, and just start me preaching to students. And people will stop. And it'll be like, you know, this deviant trying to shape young minds. And uh, so they didn't do it, and they gave me some reason for not doing it. Okay, so the next week we're in Waco, Texas, home of the David Koresh thing, which they had been calling me. I never referred to myself as that. And I said, well, why don't we, because it was blocked off by, and they had 24-hour security of the site. You couldn't get into it. I said, why don't we go there and I'll take Kurgan and we'll head down to the site and try to get in and cause a kerfuffle and we'll get it on camera. As a shoot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we'll get it on camera. And they refused to do it. And then all of a sudden it was like, Russo's like, ah, this, we're getting some religious heat on this. This is not, you know. And um, so then they came to me and they said, well, you're going to get some new guys anyway. I said, okay, uh, who am I getting? And uh, they said, well, it's either going to be Al Snow or Steven Regal, or John Tenta. And I said, do I have any say in this? He said, yes. And I said, you know, I said, well, I, I said, I love Steven Regal, but I said, Al Snow would be really cool because he was doing the head gimmick in ECW. And I said, what if, you know, I said, have him while he's with Paul, slowly over like three weeks, the head starts to look more and more like the jackal. So it's got hair, blah, blah, blah. Then finally at the end, it has the jewel on its head. And then boom, he shows up at at the TV and, and he would be the classic character that would, you know, go under the mind control gimmick. And cause I wanted a guy who was a technician who could work. Cause I didn't have that. I right. had the big guys. He's like, no, no, no. We got something else for Al Snow. I said, well, I said, I, I love Steven Regal. He's one of my favorite guys. I go, could I get him? And then they came back a couple days later. No, you're getting John Tent. I'm like, okay, earthquake. Like I was a mark for him. Cause he used to <laughs> wrestle Hogan when I was a kid. <laughs> yeah. Uh, nope. He's like, uh, He's going to uh, wear a gimmick. He's going to have uh, a big growth on his head, and he's going to be a humpback. And I was like, why would he be a humpback? And he's like, because if he's, if he's a humpback, he's always got one shoulder up. He can't get pinned. Shut up. That's what they told me. That's like, it's like the oldest joke in wrestling, right? Yeah. And I'm like, so you guys are basically ribbing John Tenta. Yeah. Like, I don't yeah, know. Right, right, right. So um, 
so they wanted him to have a mask with like a built-in goiter on his head, right? So that was what we got. And then then they gave me, I think they gave me someone else, like another. Then then like really stupid, you've got a giant Kurgan who we're trying to get over. And now you give me the giant Silva who made Kurgan look small. Wow. It's like, why would you put them together? You know, and it like, so now I've got this team and I've got the guy with the thing in his head and I've got, you know, these other guys and I've got t- two giants. And then they gave me Luna, who was awesome, you know, and I, I was oh, sitting. I didn't, I didn't remember that. Yeah, she we had Luna. Too. And so I'm, I'm sitting back with, uh, with uh, Russo and we're getting everyone together for a promo. And these, you know, down the hall come these two huge guys, then this giant, then this bigger giant, then the guy with the goiter on his head. I looked at Russo, I go, it's like a parade of human oddities. And Russo goes, Where'd you come up with that? I go, I don't know. I just said it. And he's like, that's great. So then he comes back to me. He goes, they're going to be called the parade of human oddities. And you're going to be like the guy controlling them. Triple H thinks we should get you a red and white striped suit. And you're like a carnival parker. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, I'm not doing that. <laughs> so this is now the second time I've, ref- well, the second time I've refused to do a gimmick, but I've also refused this other job. So this is a trend, right? Of course, about three. And I'm like, I'm like, I don't want it. And they're like, well, we can't have you wearing black anymore because black is taker's color. I'm like, okay, well, it doesn't have to be red and white stripe. I'll get a different suit. So now they became the oddities. And then Russo got it in his head that, well, I can now use the Howard Stern guys and we can make this thing a whole thing. So he's so he tells me he goes okay we got Hank the angry drunken dwarf we got sideshow Bob they're coming down and he's like uh, I'm like who are these people because I didn't know Howard Stern right so um, meanwhile he's telling me like we've got like it's going to be like a freak show so I knew I knew someone who knew a, a person who was a dancer in Detroit um, who her name was Rachel Rockets and she was you know kind of. You know, if she wore a jacket, it would be size 88 and have some G's in it, you know. Right. Uh, so I had her uh, as part of our group as well because it was kind of this crazy looking. Giant boobs. D- d- sure. And uh, so I show up at the building and, and Russo goes, oh, you got to meet your guys. And I'm like, okay. So I meet Hank and Sideshow Bob and it's like a full on disaster. They're loaded you know, in their dressing room. Like, it's just an incomprehensible, like, you can't. Yeah. So I go out, and I cut this promo. I'm thinking, okay, how do I make this work? I'm going, okay, well, I can put heat on myself by being, like, the guy who's taking advantage of all of these misfits to get TV time. Mm-hmm. So we went out and did this thing, and it was horrible. And, in fact, I think it's on YouTube as the worst segment ever in World Wrestling Federation. <laughs> so the really funny thing was, but I was very interested in what the numbers were. So... I said, Russo, call me when you know what the rating was for the segment because I want to know, right? So he calls me on Tuesday. He's like 4.2, highest thing on the show. Wow. So I have this in my head. I'm like, okay, well, at least I'm going to get to do something because I've been kind of, you know, stop, start, stop, start all the time, which is really frustrating because you just get going with something and then they're like, oh, we got cold feet on that. So I remember uh, there was a house show in Winnipeg. And I think I was playing cards in the back with somebody, and Bradshaw walks in. He goes, he goes, Jackal, that was the worst goddamn segment I've ever seen. That was an atrocity. And I look at him, I go, I go, well, I go, it was a 4.2. What was your segment? <laughs> <laughs> so I, I started laughing, right? Yeah. And uh, I go, dude, I go, I know it's terrible, but you're talking to me like I came up with this stuff, you know? Like, I, I, didn't, I didn't really want to be doing that. But, and so... Um, and I, again, had six weeks of television map that I said, okay, Vince, 
Um, he goes, how are we going to top this? I said, well, I said, I've got these two guys called the Werewolf Brothers in Mexico who have a genetic disease, which they have fur all over their bodies. This is a total shoot, by the way. You've okay. seen this. They, they, yeah, they are acrobats, and they're covered from head to toe in fur. They look like beavers. Okay. <laughs> so did you just see them on TV or something? Leave it to Steve. What? Did you just saw them on TV or something? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, and so, like, you know, Ripley's Believe It or Not. So I tracked these guys down, and I said, look, do you want to be on television in WWF? Yes. How did you track them down? Well, you know, I have my ways. Okay. So so I had these guys booked. I had a bunch of other stuff booked, you know. The the young lady had it uh, would come out in a, in a, this I think was Russo's idea, come out in a tight uh tank top white tank top and on the was written on the front jackal me off and uh, so you know it was just kind of this thing so we had it all mapped out all of a sudden boom kind of starting to get cold feet but we're still doing it now we go to wrestlemania right we do mania and they have the nice after party that vince puts on and me and adam copeland were the only ones that didn't have wives or girlfriends with us whole other story um we go to the party. I'm sitting with Kurgan and his lovely wife, and she wants him to dance. I said, dude, don't dance. Don't dance. And I used to get on him about this, like when we'd show up at Bill, he's the nicest guy in the world, and always laughing and joking. I go, laugh and joke in the car, in the hotel. When you're in public, be a giant. Be a mean, miserable giant. Soon, when we walk into the building, there'll always be marks, right? We walk into the building, don't be joking around, laughing, smiling at the marks, be a giant in public. And so now he's going to go dance. He goes, why not? Why can't I dance? And I said, because if Vince sees you dance, it's over. I said, it's going to change the perception. And I always used to think, don't do anything in front of Vince that you don't want to do in front of millions of people on television. Would that be fairly accurate? True, yeah. So he got up and he cut a rug and he's a pretty good dancer for a giant. And, uh, I, I'm not watching him, though. I'm watching Vince. And oh. so I see Vince kind of, you know, I don't want to overstate it, but Vince He's looking. had an eye on him at one point, and I'm just like, that, we're done. And the next week or a couple weeks later, we're at TV, and they're baby faces. And he's a dancing giant in a tuxedo. And I'm like, oh. So, but they're getting a push, and they, they're going to put Sable with them. And I'm, but I'm not part of it now. <laughs> and so I look at Russo, and I go, so the dancing giant, like, they've all, they're booked. And I said, like, I'm off TV. And he goes, Vince thinks you're too talented to be with this group. Okay. You know, that's cool. And, um, and so then I ended up sitting. And they, they ended up, they did, like, the famous, well, famous for me, uh, the lowering of the platform pulpit, thing, yeah. the pulpit. And that was actually funny, too, because that was when I kind of thought, okay, they're they're all in on the jackal if they're doing this. Because they had to build the thing and set it up. And I'm standing on the ramp looking at this thing because it's going to go like 80 feet into the rafters, right? And this is after the Owen Hart thing. No, 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 before. Okay, before. And basically they built a platform about twice the size of the coffee table in front of us with out of plywood with four uh, chains on each corner. And they're building it from scratch. And I'm watching them haul it up. Right, it's, and Vince comes up. I'm on the on the ramp, and I'm watching this. Vince comes up and looks at me. and goes, "Hey, Don, afraid of heights, pal?" <laughs> and I didn't I like didn't miss a beat. I looked at Vince. I went terrified, but I'm more terrified of not getting over. And he goes, ha, ha, ha. "So the the rib on this was that I had to go up there before they opened the doors." Wow. So they told me, <laughs> and uh, and so like. An hour and a half before showtime, 
I get on this thing, so it's this platform with a pulpit and nothing else. And they gave me one bottle to drink water and another one to uh, relieve myself in because I was going to be up there for a while. So I was up there for three and a half hours before I came down. Wow. So now, imagine now, and dude, it's a seven-minute promo. Oh, my <laughs> I, They're like, yeah, you're going to cut a promo like during the match and after. Like It'll probably be a five-minute promo. What city was this? I don't remember. Okay. But they didn't even, like back then, it was like, they just say cut a promo. There was no like, this is what you're going to talk about. Yeah. So just get yourself over. Okay, so five-minute promo is a long promo, even if you're pretty comfortable, right? <laughs> you know, yeah. it's a long promo. So now I'm up there. I'm terrified because the thing moves, right? It swings. It's like a swing. <laughs> I can't really lie down on it because it's not big enough, right? Right. So I'm like clinging to it because I'm worried about falling asleep and rolling off because it's pitch black. What they don't prepare you for is when the pyro starts going off right underneath this thing. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Oh, I was totally petrified but the worst part was just the boredom because it's like you're sitting up there for hours and like i'm going over my promo so many times now i don't even know what i'm gonna say yeah so and then boom out of nowhere your music hits and now you're being lowered after three and a half hours so cut the promo and then after the promo was over well they wanted another segment for later so i had to go back up oh my gosh and then another 45 minutes and then come back down and do another one and uh like it People liked it, I think. Like, they told me that. I remember Linda McMahon was at the show, and she's like, she says, when I saw you do that, like, that's a star, you know, and all this. So, whatever. I mean, I just kind of thought, like, okay, I'm in, I'm in a good position. Mm-hmm. But then it was like, again, cold feet with a religious thing. And so they took me off TV because they turned the other guy's baby face. And now I'm kind of sitting at home wondering what's happening. Um, they're like, yeah, you can't be with that group. You're too talented. I'm like, well, give me something, mm-hmm. right? But there's nothing. So they flew me out to Connecticut to do color commentary with JR on Shotgun Saturday night, I think it was, which was awesome. Working with JR was I learned more. And I'd done color commentary for Tony a million times. I learned more about how to be a good color commentator from JR in kind of like three hours. It was great. And I remember um, we took a break, and I just hung out in the studio talking to the tech guy. And JR was in the next room. With wrestling, you always wonder whether these things are staged. Yeah. But uh, he's in the next room, and he's on the phone with what was obviously Vince. And he's going, oh, this the guy's a player. It's going to be good. This He's really great at this and whatever. And I'm like, okay, so maybe I'm going to be a color guy. That's okay. This is cool. Um, so, like, Three weeks later, there was a pay-per-view in Los Angeles, and I wasn't booked. Again, I'd been off about three months. I'm sitting at home, lying in bed. Two in the morning, my phone rings. I'm thinking it's one of my buddies. Because it's Saturday night or whatever it was, Sunday. And so pick up the phone. Is this Don Callis? Uh, Yeah. Vince McMahon. I thought it was a rib because... I was so under at that point, and uh, but I did I didn't say BS or what I was just yeah. I said oh uh, and I kind of realized holy shit this is Vince I'm like hey Vince he's like did you watch the pay per view tonight pal and I said uh, yeah I did what'd you think tremendous Vince was great you know <laughs> and he's like well I'm just uh, just stopped in the limo here to uh, get some gas and he goes I need you to be in Los Angeles tomorrow morning by twelve o'clock noon he's like we got this new show called Sunday Night Heat. And my son Shane's going to be the play-by-play, and I want you to be the color guy. I think the two of you will be great together. Whatever you got to do, just get yourself to Los Angeles tomorrow. And then the best part was he goes, Don, hold on. Bruce, get me a coffee. (laughs) 
<laughs> which I'm sure was for effect, but I popped nevertheless. <laughs> and uh, yeah, everything Vince does is all yeah. very calculated. Right? So I'm like, this is the best break yet of a million false breaks. Yeah, because I'm every like every different job too. And I'm like, I'm gonna be a color con. And I'm gonna get in with Shane, and like I'm gonna, you know, I always thought. I would have a job there for as long as I wanted it because I could do different things like burn out as a wrestler, be a manager, be a color commentator, go write television, yeah. you know? So, um, Produce, yeah. yeah, yeah. So I got, uh, got myself to LA and I show up at the TV and I'm thinking, okay, you know, two o'clock, three o'clock, no one's talking to me. And I'm thinking, don't we need to like practice or something? Prep. No one talks to me. Four thirty, I go to Russo. I go, I, I couldn't find him. I finally found him. I'm like, Vince, what's going on? He's like, Oh, um, yeah. He goes, No one talked to him. I'm like, No. He's like, Yeah. Um, so Shane, they did some stuff with Shane, but they want him to be out there with someone with a lot of experience. So Jr. is going to be doing it. Wow. That was it. So I sat there and it was like, Okay. And I was off all summer after that. I think I had another suggestion to move into Connecticut for the creative, and um, yeah, kind of hung out. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. sitting here with Don Callis. Uh, so why do you think things with WWE fizzled out for you after all those stops and starts? Well, and I had one more. They called me in the fall. and Oh, no, sorry. Right before this Sunday Night Heat thing, Russo had come to me and goes, Don, I got an idea for you. We really like it, but you're going to be hot at me about it. And I'm like, why am I going to be hot? Well, because we're going right back to the religious thing again. I go, that's okay. He goes, but Vince, we want to really ramp this thing up. You're going to be called the Messiah. Which, you know, if you know anything about religion, that is a heavy... Sure, it's basically con- saying you're Jesus. Exactly. Yeah. We're going to lower you from the ceiling, and you're going to wear white and, like, whatever. And I'm just going... Like, I know what the U.S. is like, and I'm just going, like, I am going to get death threats over this gimmick. He's like, are you worried about it? And I'm like, no, I don't... I just... I want to show you that I can help the company, and so I'll do anything, right? And I know... I can take it and make it less gimmicky. Sure, you know what to do. So the funny part about the phone call from Vince in the middle of the night was Vince was saying, like, I was getting ready to do this Messiah thing. And uh, I said to Vince, well, what about the Messiah thing? And he's like, oh, yeah, we're still doing that. And I said, okay. And I go, All right. I said, Vince, can I ask you a question? He's like, absolutely. I said, aren't you worried about, like, getting bad heat over this? And he goes, why would there be heat? You're the Messiah. <laughs> Which I thought was an awesome answer, by the way. Um, so then I think someone must have realized that the nuclear heat that would have come. Uh, bad heat. Bad heat. Um, and I probably would have had death threats and stuff. I mean, it, but so they pulled the pin on that, then sat for three months. They called me up in the fall and they said, uh, Russo goes, okay, we got a gimmick for you. He's like, we're going to make you, we're going to make you the manager for Bradshaw and Farouk. It's like, wow, those guys are both great hands. You know, this will be, this will be cool. But I said, you know, those guys can both talk. Why do they need a manager? Like, that doesn't make sense to me. You know, put me with someone who I can help, right? No, 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 we're doing this, and they're going to be like devil guys, and we want you to be Satan. 
And I'm like, wow. Like, <laughs> one side of the coin to the other. You know, and, and, uh, and he goes, yeah, so we want you uh, at TV next week. I need you to get a mohawk and, uh, you know, and like literally everything but the, the pointy tail, right? <laughs> yeah. And I said, um, I kind of tried to talk them out of the Mohawk thing and like, no, 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 we're going to get you a Mohawk. I just advanced, I go, look, I don't want to tell you no, but I'm telling you no, I'm not getting a Mohawk. And he goes, why not? And I go, because I got three months left on my contract. You haven't come to me about re-upping it. And if this thing goes sideways, and it might, because this is a cartoony gimmick, you won't be the one walking around Winnipeg with a stupid haircut mm-hmm. while it grows out. So I said, I'm not doing it. So I showed up at TV. And I kind of, I, I got, got to somehow take this cartoon gimmick and make it work. So I based it on the Lewis Cipher character in Angel Heart. So I just, all I did was. was De Niro? Yeah. yeah. So all I had, I just had a suit on and I had long fingernails, which you couldn't really see unless they zoomed in, which was cool. And I just had my hair in a, in a braid, something different. And uh, we did that for like three weeks. And I think probably fair to say Bradshaw and Farouk didn't feel like they needed a manager. I didn't think they needed it. You know, and then boom, it was like off TV again. And uh, then Bruce called me, I think it was two weeks before Christmas and said, you know, we're not renewing your contract. We'll pay you till the end. Vince says the door's open. Uh, But he said, listen, you got a lot of heat. And I said, uh, pardon me? Like, I mean, I'd hardly been around. Mm -hmm. I'm like, what do you mean heat? He's oh, you got a lot of heat with the boys. I said, oh, I said, I never had an argument or a crossword with anybody and hardly been around. I said, well, you know, can you tell me who, who I have heat with? I don't know. I go, can you tell me what the heat's about? Nope. Now, now I look back on it and it's kind of funny. Like if you can imagine like, you know, you work for Google and you go in and you getting fired and you, the HR director tells you, (laughs) you know, you're getting fired because you've got a problem. What's the problem? I don't know. Who's the problem with? I don't know. (laughs) Like it's kind of insane. (laughs) Right. And, uh, I think that was a conversation where Bruce told me I was an elitist, which puts me in good company because I think you were called that at one point. himself, yeah. And uh, I think The Rock was called yes. that. Not to compare myself, but no, it's we like... we were all called elitists. I just remember, like, the quote what is this? Is, you're just like The Rock. You're an elitist. And uh, elitist is not a word you hear in everyday parlance, yeah, so it's, it's kind of funny, word. right? It's Yeah. yeah. So uh, I went, well, what do you mean by that? And he, he said, well, you're, you know, you're pretty aloof. And I'm like... I I tried to explain to him that, like, coming in there, only being there every two weeks for TV, it's hard to bond with people. Also, being put in the manager role, like, I didn't know how to act. Like, I'd always been a wrestler, Mm -hmm. you know. But, you know, they they weren't having it. It was like, no, we're not renewing your contract. And I remember uh, Bruce said, well, the other thing is, he said, because I kept pushing him, right? Like, I want you to tell me the truth, right? And uh, he said, well, the other thing, you go out there and get yourself over. And I sat there for a minute, and uh, I went, did he just say that? And I said, Bruce, you know, I said, I know you've been in the business a long time. I said, I've only been in the business eight years. But I said, I worked a few places. And I said, I know one thing about this business. The whole point of this business is to get over. And if you're not over, you're nowhere, right? Still to this day. Sure, of course. And uh, he said, well, you get yourself over at the expense of your talent. Hmm. And I said, you know, I said, no one has ever said that to me in a year and a half. In fact, is always the opposite with the promos. Great, great, great. I said, you know, Bruce, I guess it wasn't you who was working with Kurgan during the afternoon in the rings. Like, I would get Kurgan to hit me over and over again to try to work on his punches and stuff like that um, because I wanted, because if he was going to be on the road, I'd be on the road. Mm-hmm. So it was like we're a team, right? So this was, to me, an insane comment about you're getting yourself over. And this would also 
presuppose that these guys were super over before I got there. In reality, Kurgan was more over after we kind of split ourselves out. So um, I kind of quickly recognized that this isn't about making sense. This is just about, you know, you're you're done. And uh, I mean, funny thing, I actually used Bruce's speech to me verbatim in ECW when I was doing an angle with Joel Gertner and firing him. So this is kind of humorous. So yeah. <laughs> Quick question. Yeah. Um, I've never asked this before. Mm. When I was in WCW, um, I've had I had the secret meeting at Vince McMahon's house mm-hmm. that was arranged by Vince Russo via you. Yeah. How did that come to be just quickly? I think uh, Russo asked me if I was friends with you, uh-huh. and, and I said, yeah. And he goes, do you think he'd want to come here? And I said, I don't want to speak for him, but I said, I kind of know he does. And uh, he just said, well, would you kind of be an intermediary or whatever, which I was. Gotcha. And so, uh, you know, I, I like, as I like to say, you know, I helped them get Chris Jericho, and they <laughs> sent me home with a pink slip. <laughs> do you think that you would have done good writing the TV had you ever decided to take that? Like, if they called you, well, it's a different world now. I can't say if they called you I, I think I think I would have done I think I would have done well the way it was set up back then mm-hmm. sitting in a room with Vince and a couple other guys I think that would have worked well the current system I mean I I can't even comment on it sure. but from kind of what people tell me I kind of go like I don't see how that could possibly mm-hmm. work for me mm-hmm. but back then I just basically I wanted to be a wrestler and I didn't want to live in Stamford, you know. I yeah. liked being on the road. I didn't want to go to an office 12 hours a day. When you finally uh, left WWE, um, there's so much to talk about. But, you know, it's interesting when, when you talk about leaving the WWE. Because when I was in ECW, I was there for a short time frame in 96. Which, was that when you were in the WWE? It was 96? Uh, 97 to 99. 97. Yeah. Somehow I was taught. Oh, I think I, I kept in contact with him. I remember him saying that Don Callis is the best pure heel in the business today. Paul said that. Paul 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 Heyman said that, which leads to you. Your next phase of your career was when you actually went to ECW. Did he call you? Was, were you uh, on his no. Um, so, the, like, literally the day that Bruce called me, I called Brat and said, "I think I need to come to WCW." And he goes, "I can get you in here," but he said, "You haven't been on TV in a while. Can you go to ECW for a while?" And I said, "I don't know." So I called Lance, and Lance said. I'm negotiating my contract. I'm going to talk to Paul about getting you in, and you'll get to do more here. So Lance talked to Paul, and I started, like, I think the day after my contract with Vince expired, I was in Queens, New York for ECW. Well, and Paul, obviously, what did he say to you when you when you called him to work there? Uh, I didn't call him. I, it was all done through Lance. And so what did I just when you first met him? Uh, just, you know, you, it's typical Paul. He's super friendly, puts you over. And I think with Paul, he had said to Lance, like, what do I do with him? Like, do I have him be an announcer? Do I have him be a wrestler, a manager? What do I do? And I think my first day there, I said to Lance, should I go down and work out with the guys in the ring? Because I was still thinking, like, I'm going to be a wrestler here. And Lance goes, don't do that. You'll pigeonhole yourself as an underneath guy and so we kind of um paul said like well what do you want to do and i said well at the start i said i've kind of seen kind of this office yes man thing in my past experience and i think i think it would be cool like to have a deal where i'm just showing old george costanza like show up to work even though you don't work there like <laughs> that i would just like go in the back and i had a pin that said you know creative department and i'd walk in and the guys would know me from wwf tv storyline wise and i'd go in and go okay guys like how's it going okay listen we need you for a promo and blah 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 and I just start firing orders and everyone knew in, in ECW Paul was not around that much backstage so yeah. it's like in a vacuum someone steps in and does it so that was kind of the gimmick and I would just say hey, don't, don't worry kid I'm office I'm office you know and I'd stir up all these problems and uh 
And so we kind of did that. And then Paul, Joey had been pushing for me to do uh, color commentary. And so finally, Paul, you know, very carefully, because pay-per-view was what generated the revenue. Um, I think it was Living Dangerously, my first pay-per-view. He let me call four matches with Joey. And then after that, I was the pay-per-view color commentator for the rest of my time there, which was actually, although I had a great role as kind of like the lead heel character on TV with a network thing, my favorite thing was doing color because you got to talk about the guys and I learned that from JR, like when you're a color commentator, how to get guys over. And uh, I just like that the best, you know. Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. And they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. You're listening to Talk is Jericho. All right, I'm here with Cyrus, Don Callis. Let me ask you, how was it for you going into the ECW locker room after being at WWE for so long? Oh, fine. I mean, it was it was it was a good atmosphere and guys were great. I mean, Shane Douglas, who I was a huge mark for kind of growing up, uh, Shane was like first day I'm in there, he's like, Hey man, I like your stuff and let me know if you need anything and and really everyone was super friendly. It was a great locker room. So you, you kind of, I think probably you had more respect in that locker room than you did in the, you know, room. I don't, and I don't think those guys were nice because I was in WWF. I just think they were nice guys. And, you know, again, in WWF, when you're in every two weeks, because that's how we did TV back then, every two weeks for TV, and then you're out, you're never on the road. It's really hard to kind of bond. And I mean, realistically, like my experience with Vince, totally fabulous. I mean, that was my dream to get there. There's only three of us from Manitoba, I think that have ever got there not to compare myself to you and no, no. piper but oh piper too right right, right? um good point Never thought of but that. i learned so much from guys like pat and lanza and the agents and you know the little bit of time i had with vince this is a great experience i mean i'd have loved to have stayed there longer and made a lot more money but ultimately that experience leads you to the next thing which was ecw which ended up being my best run in the business right, right. so as the uh network head of the networks Ye- cyrus is that from the warriors cyrus uh i th- i think i don't remember how i came up with the name and then someone said cyrus the virus which was a character from a movie air force one or something mm-hmm. um but that tweaked because i was doing the backstage office thing hey i'm office i'm office and then paul said you know we're gonna say that you're actually are with the office but not the ecw office with tnn the network paul had there are problems with the network. So I started doing that and they had goofy shows on like it was country music television, so like rock and bowl and stuff like that. So I'd go out and promote that and kind of did the gimmick that way. And it just got nuclear heat because the fans were so smart. They knew this network was not good for ECW. Mm-hmm. So when I would come out and I would make changes and different things, um, that got a lot of heat. And it's funny when I look back on that now, because like that was very much the pro what's now become the prototypical quote-unquote authority figure first being mr mcmahon never to be equal but mm-hmm. um it's funny because i did these that in ecw years later i went to tna and did something similar and that was oh three and i was like at that time going this is getting like old like this is the same old thing <laughs> in oh three and, and it still still happens you know so um yeah no it was a being doing the network thing with paul was awesome i had 
he was so cool to me. I had a great run there. He basically, I used to go to Paul and go, please give me notes. Tell me what I'm doing wrong. Tell me how I can be better. And he'd just go, just go out there and go. And he'd put me out there, cut a 15-minute promo, get as much heat as I could, you know. And basically, at the end of the day, let you succeed or fail on your own merits, which as a performer is all you can ask for. You know? Especially in front of those fans. Like you said, they're very smart fans. They were. And people would know, like, when you came in, like, oh, this guy is good. He didn't really get his due in WWE or, or, or can do more here. Because there's a great uh, a great bit where you actually got in a fight with Paulie uh, in in the ring. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I got to do a couple of segments with Paul. We had that one, which was in Milwaukee, and then we had another one in New York where – Literally, like Paul warned me before, he's like, you know, these fans here in New York, you don't understand, like, this is crazy. He's like, you know, be a little bit careful. And I'm like, you're telling me to be careful. I'm like, I've wrestled in South Africa where they think it's a shoot. Like, I'm not worried about this. But we went out and caused, like, literally there was a riot that was, you know, sort of dangerous. Mm-hmm. And But I, I didn't care back then. I just was like, I'm going to get as much heat as I can. So when Paulie comes out and hits me with his phone, which was the spot, it gets the biggest pop because that's kind of the most important thing. So, mm-hmm. Did you write TV with Paul too? I used to come up with a lot of my own stuff. I always thought that if I'd lived in the New York area, it would have been a lot more opportunity for me to interact with Paul, but I was flying in and out. And, you know, we were talking about it earlier. I mean, I had, he was so good to me. I mean, I made great money. I worked one day a week. I would fly in business class, you know, Uh, not that they paid for business class, but I'd get upgraded and Mm -hmm. and, uh, I'd be out, I'd be home in 24 hours because I would just do TV. Not that I asked for that. That was just kind of how I was booked. But I was always, because of my WWF experience, again, very positive, but it taught me a lot about, I need to like really look at this in three dimensions. Don't assume anything is the way it seems. So it made me very paranoid. And so every week when I'd get on the plane, I'd always be thinking, is this the week someone's going to try to screw, screw me over? Never happened. Paul was awesome to me, but that was just kind of like a hangover from that experience sure. of not seeing something coming and being blindsided. Right. So, so you're preparing yourself. For yeah, yeah, time. yeah. Because the business does have a tendency to make you paranoid, especially when you're in that position where you don't really know for sure where you stand. Absolutely. And uh, like it was a great run there and kind of by the time it wound down and I guess it was January of 2001, um, you know, Lance was in WCW and kind of I was really sad that the company was closing. I was desperately hoping there till the end. I was there till the end. I was desperately hoping Paul would find a way to do it. But I wasn't worried as bad as it sounds because I knew I could go to Atlanta at that point because Lance had told me and that was right around the time Bischoff was going to buy WCW and uh, and Bischoff had talked to me on the phone about coming in Joey was already going to be going there as the commentator oh, was that the plan? and I was supposed to maybe be doing uh, color with him on Nitro the new Nitro whatever that was going to be so I had a job and I was going to have a, and start whenever they started up and I was like, well, I'm good. You know, I'll make more money there. And, um, but then all of a sudden, boom, that ended. And I was like, wow, the industry now went from three companies, which as you know, was very competitive and that helped in terms of salaries. Um, cause I got, I'm sure I got a lot more money from Paul than I would have otherwise because there was the WCW right. option at the time when I did my contract. Um, and I'm like, well, now there's only one place to work. And for guys like you, a monopoly is not a bad thing because you're you. But for a lot of us, like I kind of went like, I can't leverage stuff anymore. And I was 33 and I kind of said, 
I don't like how this is playing out. I don't like the idea of working anywhere, not just for Vince, but anywhere where there's no options. And I, I don't want to feel stuck, you know, because I'd seen that the business could be very unstable in terms of you're, you're, you're over one day, the next day you're not. Mm-hmm. And so at that point, I just said, I'm retiring and I got to do something else. As scary as that was, I thought better to do it at 33 than 43. And um, it was weird because at that time, there was a lot of people still saying, start up this, start up that, you know, there's going to be this new promotion. And I'd get calls and I'd turn them down because I just was like, I don't believe it, right? I don't believe it. Yeah. And uh, I ended up going back to school. I thought, well, I got to get another degree. I already had one. I was getting another degree so I can make money because I can't, I can't go from what I've been doing and have a regular kind of job. And so I thought, well, law school, that's five years. But I could do it, found out I could do an MBA in 11 months at the University of Manitoba, which is very intense, 80 hours a week type of deal. So I decided I was going to do that. But in order to do that, I had to go back to school and redo some courses because I, you know, kind of drunk beer and joked around yeah. in my undergrad. And uh, so that was a bit of a head trip too, because I still had the long hair and I'd just been off TV for about two months. And I'm in intro psych classes at the U of M with these 18 year old kids going, look, it's the jackal or whatever, right? <laughs> what are you doing here? You know, it's yeah. just kind of lame, but yeah. Uh, yeah so yeah, and that was. The, did you ever uh, miss the business at this day and age? Um, I miss it today. I miss aspects of it. I mean, I think that the thing we did in New York really made me realize how much fun it is to see the boys. I miss that part of it. Um, I don't miss being in the business. I worked hard to kind of get my new career going and all that, but you're very successful now, by the way. Well, thank you very much. But I, I miss the the Manitoba government. I I miss the boys, Mm -hmm. you know, and I miss that camaraderie and what was really cool about New York. Like you said, we hadn't seen each other in however many years, but boom, it's like just picked right up. Yeah. Like Lenny met me at the, at LaGuardia and like, we just started in, like we just seen each other the day before. So that, that part's really cool, but it's, you know, it's at the end of the day, it's like, it's a great experience and wrestling prepared me for life in the corporate world or whatever in business. I always thought wrestling wouldn't help me with any new career. Mm, interesting. But actual fact, everything in wrestling had an op- application in everything I did since stuff that you learned in terms of how to handle your business, how to get over, you know, cause at the end of the day, life's about getting over and no matter to what connect, you to connect with people, to connect with an audience, connect with a crowd. And that doesn't necessarily have to mean 10,000 people. It could be yeah. four people in a boardroom. That's exactly right. And, um, you know, when you kind of have that life experience, I mean, prior to going to WWF wrestling took me all over the world. I mean, I've been to South Africa twice and never would have gone there. Mm-hmm. And it's funny. I was just talking to someone the other day about my first international, cause I, I never really got serious about the wrestling business till 94, even though I was trained in 89 and uh, my first trip to South Africa was kind of what really turned the light on for me that this is a nice way to make a living. Went there for six weeks, working one day a week, and we're rock stars. People think it's a shoot. <laughs> I actually, just a quick one, uh, my first day in South Africa, we're working a tennis stadium in front of 7,000 people outside. And I walk to the ring, and, and the people are sitting, you know, and, uh, and they're really intense. Like, they think this is a shoot. So I'm getting a lot of heat. I haven't done anything yet. And I'm wrestling one of the locals. And I look, and I'm kind of nervous. So I'm talking to the ring announcer guy kind of while the other guy's making his entrance. And I go, oh, look, this is really cool. They let people bring their pets. And he's like, what are you talking about? I go, well, look, there's like 10 dogs sitting in the front row there. He's like, those are attack dogs. And I'm like, what? I go, why, why are there attack dogs? And he goes, to keep the people from killing you. <laughs> Total wow. shoot, yeah. And, and, that, and I later found out that 
most places have a coat check. They had a firearms check at the building, and wow. they had checked 2,500 handguns <laughs> as people uh, came in. So needless to say, um, I wrestled very scientific and didn't push the envelope. I actually remember the last night of the tour, bad news was wrestling Gama, who's like a god there, right? Gama Singh. And uh, he was putting him over clean in the middle in a cage. The people were so mad at him that they rioted, stormed the cage, and started lighting chairs on fire and throwing them in the cage where Bad News was kind of stuck. Man. That was the atmosphere. But back then, like, you know, yeah. like, we didn't care, right? Let's, let's talk a little bit about Bad News, like what influence he was in you. Because I think he's kind of a forgotten guy in the... Great, you know what? Great guy. And uh, really, like we talked about in the last podcast, just very straight up. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, would always kind of give you the straight goods. And... Um, Probably a straight shooter to his detriment, but one of the toughest guys ever in the business. Jerry Morrow is another guy we talk about, probably the best worker that I've been in the ring with maybe, Mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, it's all part of kind of what gets you there. Um, The other one that was really funny for me was um, I went, remember Paul Apperstein? No. Paul Apperstein tried to start like a competition company with all the ex-WWF guys in like 95. And I did a tour to Lebanon with him. And it was like, I was the only... Ex, non-ex-WWE guys. So there was like Warlord, uh, Barry Darso, The Iron Sheik, Jimmy Snuka, Greg Valentine, Hercules Hernandez, and me. And we're in Beirut, and Beirut is crazy back then. And uh, we'd all been told not to go. We had a promoter from Kuwait who owed us all money that he was supposed to send us, never did. But we're just kind of hanging out. And uh, the promoter, my first night I'm wrestling Abdullah the Butcher. And Abdullah um, says, you know, well, I need to get, get some color, and I'd never done it. But all I know is that I don't want him doing it to right, me. Right. So I'm like, I better do this properly. So I did one, and I guess it seemed like time was going really slow. So I did two more. And literally, and I, I, I've said this to you before, I saw your, your thing in Smoky Mountain. Yeah, yeah. Dude, this was worse. Wow. I had eight, 18 stitches Harry, afterwards. Stephen King, bucket of blood over the head. Within 30 seconds, my white patent leather boots were red. That's wow. how soaked I was. So Abby loved it. He's excited. He's coming out, and he's hitting me. And uh, I'm, I'm trying to show my face to the crowd. So I'm on my knees. I'm letting him hit me. And he's like, you're not selling. And he starts <laughs> potatoing me because I'm not going down. And so he grabbed the chair, potatoed me with a chair. And then he's mad, so he got the ring bell. And by the time he got the bell, I just started running. And it's like a baseball stadium. And they had an ambulance way out in center field that they had there because they thought it was a shoot in this place also. And I'm running from Abby, and funny to watch Abby chase someone. And I'm covered in blood. The ambulance guys are looking at me running towards them. They're freaking out. They start running towards me with with the stretcher. And Abby's like surprisingly nimble for a big man <laughs> how hot on my tail and i like literally did like a plancha onto this this uh stretcher and i'm like go and like he almost caught us and uh so they took me to the hospital 18 stitches so you oh, know nice. as a mark yeah. so of course the boys are ribbing me when i get back but i actually got the rest of the tour off i only had one other match because i I couldn't wrestle. Right, so I was right. so stitched up. Yeah. As actually me and Warlord, Warlord had third degree sunburn on his feet, so he couldn't wrestle either. So he and I became really good friends. <laughs> and uh, the funny thing about Warlord was, so in the middle of this tour, we're not getting our money. Um, the promoter is nowhere to be found. We don't know what to do. It's a very dangerous place. 
door knock at my door at one thirty in the morning, open the door and it's warlord, you know, six six, three forty, solid muscle. It's like, Don, get your stuff, we're going. I'm like, dude, it's three in the morning, where are we going? We're walking to Israel. What? Well Israel's like nine miles away. <laughs> he wants to get out of this place. Uh, and I'm like, we can't walk to Israel through Hezbollah territory and you're gonna slightly stand out a little bit. <laughs> um so yeah, and at the end of the day, we ended up sort of getting held hostage by the promoter because basically he said, I'm not giving you your money because um, we had said we weren't going to wrestle unless we got paid. And he's like, you need to realize where you are. You need to wrestle or something really bad is going to happen to you guys. Wow. And, and I'm holding your plane tickets and you're not leaving. So we literally couldn't leave the kind of compound we were in. And I ended up making friends with some Lebanese family that was staying in this hotel with us. And they called the police and the army, and the army came and got us out. Wow. And uh, the army arranged, I think it was, to get us tickets to leave. And it was all, like, really weird routings that we had to take to get out of there. And I think they arrested the promoter. No one got their money. Um, But that was kind of like my first Abdullah experience. And when I went to Japan a year later, he was on the tour. And uh, I remember him coming up to me before a match and touching my forehead and going your future's in my hands champ because he wanted me to to get the color again and i'm just like i'm not doing this because like he was a nice guy to talk to but i hated working him because he just was terrible and uh, so i ended up actually pantomiming getting color and i had my bangs in my face and then as soon as i got back to the locker room i put tape on my head so he'd think i'd gotten color so i remember in fmw those guys were doing it so much they actually used to have a little soy soy sauce like a plastic little soy sauce fish and they would fill it with red food coloring and use that as the juice they were like sick of getting color every yeah, night yeah, yeah. so yeah. they would actually just like you know oh that's just ketchup or yeah in that case it was just <laughs> last question uh twofold one what was your favorite thing that you did in wwe and what's your favorite match that you ever had i think m- my favorite thing i ever did in wwe was to create under quite a bit of pressure to create a new character out of something really bad mm-hmm. um, and do it kind of in real time on the fly and make it happen. Not that that character was anything superb or anything like that, but it was like a good lesson in terms of, okay, you don't always get things handed to you just the way you want. And sometimes you got to figure out a way to make it work within that system. Yeah. And that was not an easy thing to do, especially when you'd kind of been tagged with this bad character. So I would say that's the thing that I liked the best about my time there, other than the overall experience of mm-hmm. kind of being there, which was cool. And you have your own action figure? Is it- yeah, I think you can get them for about 57 cents on uh, <laughs> eBay. Someone told me they're not real, real big sellers. Not big sellers. Uh, favorite match there? There really wouldn't be one. because I think um, Probably my first match with Rick Martell in mm-hmm. Porters La Prairie. Because it was really one where the light turned on that I might actually be able to do this as a living because um, he was still really great. He was just off his model run in WWF and a great worker. And I was, you know, of course, had all these doubts about whether could I go in and hang with him or not. And, uh, you know, we did 25, 30 minutes and he talked to me afterwards and I was like, okay, maybe I can do this, you know. And so that yeah. was kind of, that's one I remember anyway. Any matches with that, that, that or the the getting drop kicked in the corner at bumpers <laughs> or by some stiff. <laughs> Jesus! Oh. <laughs> Thanks, man. Okay. All right. Thank you so much to Cyrus, a great, great guy. Do you want to hear more from Cyrus Don Callis? Huh? Do you want to hear more? Well, it's very funny that you say that. 
because I'm about to announce the third huge show on the Jericho Network debuting next Tuesday, October 18th. I'm talking about killing the town with Storm and Cyrus. That's right. Lance Storm and Don Callis Cyrus are joining up to give you the best wrestling analysis you could ever hear. It's the business of pro wrestling analyzed, debated, discussed. I've never met two guys smarter about the psychology of the wrestling business or more honest about the wrestling business than Don Callis and Lance Storm. That's why they're teaming up for killing the town with Storm and Cyrus. They're going to be talking about their own careers, ECW, WCW, Japan, Mexico, working the, the Northern Independent Tours, WWE, everywhere in between. And more importantly, they're going to analyze the sport. They're going to talk very, very uh, intelligently about what they see, what they like, what they don't like. Uh, There's a lot of wrestling analysts. Let me tell you this, though. Don and Lance have no hidden agenda. They've got no masters. They do what they want. They say what they want. And you are going to love it. Killing the Town debuts this Tuesday, October 18th with Storm and Cyrus. You are going to be entertained all week long on the Jericho Network because we've got the Team Tiger Awesome show on Sundays. Killing the Town every Tuesday. Keep it at 100 with Conan on Thursdays. And, of course, Talk is Jericho Wednesday and Friday. You can take away all those other podcasts, throw them into the bin, delete them all. Delete, 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 and just stick with the Jericho Network and Talk is Jericho because we got you covered, all right? Podcast one, the Jericho Network taking care of you, baby. Just go to iTunes if you want to check it out. Hit the subscribe button on all those podcasts. Be sure to leave everyone a five-star rating and review. And thanks to all you guys for downloading Talk is Jericho twice a week, every week for free. And for supporting all my amazing sponsors on the show, including the OG sponsor, Amazon. All my Amazon links are at podcast1.com. Click on the Kilo Deals button in the top right corner of the page. Then hit the Talk is Jericho button. Amazon links for the USA, UK, Canada. Every time you use them, Amazon links, Amazon kicks back a small percentage to this show to help you cover production costs. Anything you can buy on Amazon. If you buy something, as a matter of fact, I want you to take a picture, post it on the Twitter at Talk is Jericho. I will retweet you and I will follow you, right? Remember, no extra fees or hidden charges to shop on uh, Amazon via Podcast One. All my other great sponsors are there too as well. DDP Yoga, get 15% off the DDP Yoga program plus three months of full access to the DDP Yoga Now app. Just go to ddpyoga.com slash Jericho. Then there's DraftKings. Use my promo code Y2J to play for free with your first deposit at DraftKings.com. There's also Original Grain Watches, the most finely crafted watches I've ever seen. They look so great. Go to Original Originalgrain.com slash Jericho. Get 50% off your entire purchase. Loot Crate. Don't forget them. LootCrate.com slash talk. Use the promo code talk to get $3 off of any new subscription. There's Jack Threads. Go to jackthreads.com. Enter the promo code Jericho when you submit your tryout for 20% of anything you keep. Wow, there's a lot of great sponsors, man. I know it seems like there's a lot of them, but that just shows how much interest there is, how many of you are supporting this show, how many of you are making this show one of the number one podcasts, not just on Podcast One, but in the entire world, okay? You guys are going, in, uh, the, the numbers that you're producing for me have been insanely amazing. And I appreciate that. And they're going to be even better on March 15, 2017, when my newest rival, Mick Foley, joins Talk is Jericho for the biggest podcast ever. Only 153 days and counting. And what a great suit Mick had uh, this week on Raw. Another great week uh, for me on Raw. The list of Jericho just getting over huge. So ridiculous that a clipboard and a pen is one of the most over characters on the show. That's why I told Matt Hardy the other day it's going to be the list of Jericho versus Vanguard 1 at WrestleMania. Hashtag it now. Hashtag it, man. Let me tell you. So uh, thank you so much for t- uh, for tuning in and checking that out. And thank you for listening to Talk is Jericho. Keep listening for the 60-second AP News headlines coming up next. Stay hard, stay hungry, peace, love, and hugs. And next Friday, it's time to get your laugh on with the highly requested 
impractical jokers are going to be here. Salvatore Volcano and Brian Q. Quinn from True TV's Impractical Jokers are going to be here. I met up with these guys in New York. They're hilarious. The TV show is hilarious. They prank each other, do improv comedy bits in public, tattoo each other. If you haven't seen uh, Sal's tattoo of uh, Jaden Smith, oh, we're going to talk all about that. Yeah, Will Smith's son. He's got a big tattoo of Jaden Smith on his leg. Great stories about comedy bits gone wrong, ones that backfired, and some of the crazy punishments they had to endure after losing comedy challenges. And also this, they are lifelong Chris Jericho fans. So that's going to be Sal and Q from Impractical Jokers. It's going to be on Friday. It's going to be a big, big show. So check it out. We'll see you then. The big, yeah, boy. You can download new episodes of Talk is Jericho every Wednesday and Friday at podcast1.com. That's podcast podcastone.com.